help us uh, open up uh, our minds, not only in the sense of intellect, but Father, open up our hearts that we might receive this word that it falls deep within us, that we see Jesus. And in seeing him, Father, I pray that we're comforted and assured. And Father, that we love him even more. On this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Leviticus in chapter 5, please. I want to read beginning with verse 14 through chapter 6 and verse 7. So Leviticus 5.14 through 6.7. Hear the word of God. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord... He shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish, out of the flock valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it, and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a manner of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor, or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in and any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt, and will restore what he took by robbery, or what he got by oppression, or the, the deposit that was committed to him, or the lost thing that he found, or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it, and give it to him, to whom it belongs, on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest, as his compensation to the Lord, a ram without blemish, out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do, and thereby become guilty. Now, as we've talked through these particular sacrifices, beginning in Leviticus in chapter 1 and so forth, we see a number of similarities. Uh, we see, for instance, that each sacrifice was instituted by God. And they were instituted by God so that God could dwell among his people and they could dwell with him. God is holy. We are not. Thus, for God to live among us and not be defiled, for us to live among him and not be consumed because of his holiness, he institutes these sacrifices. And so what we see in these sacrifices is, first of all, this concept, this sense of substitution, that God says, I can't accept you and your unholiness, so bring something with you when you come who will be your substitute, who will stand for you, and that thing at this point in time was an unblemished animal. So there has to have the appearance at least of holiness. So bring this unblemished animal and it will stand for you. And then we see in the midst of all of this as well, atonement, because this animal was slain and his blood was taken. And thus, the worshiper would look at that animal and realize, 
I should have died. It died in my place. I live. So we see those similarities as these sacrifices are made. But each has its own distinctive as well. For instance, in the burnt offering, the first offering we considered, in the burnt offering, even though there was atonement made, that is, the animal was unblemished and killed and the blood was sprinkled on the altar, even though atonement was made, it's distinctive that thing that is what made it different than all the other offerings was the fact that it was completely consumed. Every bit of that animal was burnt on the altar. It was completely consumed. And thus, we're to see that in order to live in the presence of God, <clears throat> for Him to dwell among us and we with Him, our lives are, be, are to be completely consecrated to God. Everything belongs to Him. All of our lives. And then we looked at this grain or gift or tribute offering, as we said, and it was representative of the fact that God owned everything, and thus the people would bring to God a, a portion of what he had already given to them to, to sustain their life. And they realized that God is worthy of everything. And thus when we come to him and we bring gifts, it's because he's worthy of these gifts, because he's provided everything for us. In fact, he's given us life, and thus again we realize that if we're going to live in his presence and he in ours, then our lives are to be brought to him. And then we considered this peace offering. And what was distinctive about the peace offering was the fact that, uh, of how the portions were divided and given. Uh, a portion of that animal that was, slaved, that was slain, the fat, went to God. But then the priest, and especially the officiating priest, got portions of it. And then the rest of it went to the worshiper. And any the worshiper would invite to come and eat that sacrifice with him. In fact, that sacrifice had to be eaten within a day or two. And so that whole animal was consumed in the, con in the, in, in, in the confines of God, the priests, and the people, announcing that there's peace. Once atonement's been made, then there's peace between God's people and Him. And there's peace among us as well. So peaceful, in fact, that we could all sit and we could all eat together. And then we considered this sin offering. And the sin offering, of course, was an unblemished animal and all of that and the blood taken. But the quintessential sin offering was that offering that was made on the Day of Atonement when there were two goats that were offered. One that was given slain, its blood taken all the way into the most holy place, put on the, alt on the seat of mercy for the propitiation of the sins of the people that is to satisfy the wrath of God. And then the second goat had upon it all the sins of the people confessed and it went out into the wilderness, right full view, it just left in front of all the people so they would realize that God would blot out their sin and that he would remember it no more. And of course, in all these sacrifices, we see Jesus. Uh, in the burnt offering, we see the very fact that it was Jesus, the unblemished one, Jesus, our substitute, Jesus, our atoning sacrifice, Jesus, whose life was holy and completely consecrated to God. And then in the gift of the tribute to the grain offering, we realize that it's Jesus who's the giver of life and he gives his life. In fact, his life is the most worthy life of all of the lives of anyone on earth. His is the most worthy life given to the one worthy of such a worthy life. 
And then the peace offering, we understand that it's through Christ and in Christ and Christ alone that our peace comes because he is our peace and he makes peace by the blood of the cross. And peace is preached through him, even to us. Because he, he makes peace between us and God and each other as well. And in the sin offering, we understand that his blood is the very blood of propitiation. He himself satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf. And because of him, our sins are blotted out and remembered no more. So now we come to this last offering, this guilt offering, or what some of you may have in your translations, the trespass offering, which actually is a translation I like a bit better, the trespass offering. There's been a violation made. And and as we read through this particular sacrifice, it sounds like all the others. I I don't know about you, but when I'm reading through Leviticus in my Bible reading through the year, uh, around mid-chapter 2, I'm starting to speed up. All these details, they seem to sound so much alike. That's why I thought it was helpful for us to spend these weeks together. that will slow you down next year. You go, didn't he say something was unique about this? And so we come to this particular offering, the guilt offering, trespass offering, and we see very similar things. We see an unblemished animal come. Uh, we see it slain. Uh, we see that there have been sins made, violations. These particular ones are delineated. Uh, sins against the holy things, that is, in terms of making sacrifices. There would be some unintentional error, some error there. Um, and, and all the other things... Uh, Moses says that people sin about, and then we see these very particular ones that deal with fraud, that deal with money, that deal with stealing, that deal with oppression, that deal with robbery, where, where you've taken something that belongs to someone else, and you go, okay, we need atonement for that, and all that, and these animals have to be killed. But there's something quite unique about this particular offering. And what's unique about this particular offering is that restitution is made, plus a premium. Notice, in uh, chapter 5 and verse 15, We read this, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, and remember we explained last week that whole unintentional thing, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. And so now you see when you bring this animal, the priest places a value on its head. It says this ram is worth X number of dollars. He's kind of like the car salesman, you know, putting this in a used ram. Uh, it's a mileage, unblemished, but so he puts a price on it. And you get a sense that this is a valuation that's subjective and no doubt related to the offense. So the greater the offense, the greater the value he must put on this ram in order to remedy for the offense. And not only that, notice... Verse 16, he shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth, 20% to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. In other words, for forgiveness now to take place in this particular kind of offering, because there's been an offense, you get the sense that the, the priest must know about this offense. So you bring this animal, he puts a value on it and you're sitting there hoping, you know, for a low value because you've got to add 20% to it. And so the greater the offense, then, the greater the value of the ram, the higher you have to give in order to make restitution for your sin. Then notice in chapter 6 and verse 2. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he's oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it and swearing falsely in any of the things that people do and sin thereby, if he's sinned and realized his guilt... 
and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he uh, found or anything about which he has sworn falsely. He shall restore it in full and add a fifth to it and give it uh, to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And so, if you're found, if you realize that you've defrauded, that you've stolen, that you've, by oppression, gotten something that isn't to be yours, and you realize your guilt in the midst of that, you have to then repair the injury. You have to restore, make restitution, plus this 20% premium. And so the question then, what really does that mean? Well, thus far, you see, when we've considered sin, we've considered the fact that when we sin, we come under the judgment of God. We incur his wrath. That is, God's wrath being his reasonable, just response to our sin. And so we come under the wrath of God. Thus, to live in his presence, our sin must be atoned for. That is, that, that, that if, it, if we bear the iniquity of our sin, the punishment for our sin then it means eternal death. It means hell for us. And so God in these sacrifices was saying, rather than taking your life, I'll take the life of this unblemished substitute. And so atonement was made. But there's something else also that happens when we sin. And, and, and to help us understand that, I want to quote someone I've never quoted before publicly in my life, but I've always wanted to because his name is Gerhardus Voss. I just like that name. I think some of you should have children named Gerhardus. I would love to, to, to baptize a Gerhardus Smith or something. I don't know. I just think that would be good. Anyway, Gerhardus Voss was a, a, a great theologian at the turn of the century. Taught at Princeton back when Princeton was Christian. Uh, taught in Princeton uh, 1893 to 1932. So those were his, his dates there. And he wrote a book called Biblical Theology. But listen to what he says about this offering. He says, the distinction between the sin offering and the trespass offering is difficult to define. And it is. You know, when you think about sin offerings and guilt offerings, you want to ask the question, you know, really, what's, what's the difference? He says, two features stand out in, in, in the trespass offering. On the one hand, it is the only sacrifice of which an appraisal is made. That is, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, that when you bring this animal, the priest actually puts a price on it. Okay, so an appraisal is made. It's the only offering um, like that. And on the other hand, it's the only one to which a of, sum of money must be added. So once the appraisal is made, 200 shekels, uh, then you have to pay another 20% on top of that, another 40 shekels. So the value feature, therefore, is in evidence. This suggests a theory... And you have to understand something about Voss. You may want to run out and buy his book called Biblical Theology. But I dare say this will be the only paragraph that you can understand. It's a difficult book to read. But anyway, this suggests the theory that it forms the complements of the sin offering in giving to God that positive thing withheld from him through sin. Let me read that sentence again. This suggests the theory that it forms the complement of the sin offering in giving to God that positive thing withheld from him through sin. Every sin offers to God what ought not to be offered, an offense. And at the same time, it withholds from God what ought to have been given to him, obedience. If the sin offering rectifies the former, that is, the offense, the trespass offering would then make restitution for the latter, that is, what was withheld. Let me unpack this. 
When we sin, we incur a debt. Thus, when Jesus was giving to us what we call the Lord's Prayer, he made the statement in the midst of that, forgive us our debts. He didn't say, though he could have, forgive us our sins, or even forgive us our trespasses, but the word there is to forgive us our debts. And so when we sin, you see, we incur a debt. And this debt, really, is twofold. On the one hand, we owe the debt because of the offense. That is the penalty. When we sin against God, there's a penalty. There's punishment. Because he's just. And so there's that debt. We understand that debt even in our own society. When someone goes off to prison and comes out, they come back saying, I've paid my debt to society. So we understand that when we sin and there's punishment, that we incur this debt. And the sin offering... The atoning sacrifice pays that debt for the offense. We've offended God. Thus, punishment is necessary because he's just. We call it his wrath. And so, this atoning sacrifice is made so that his wrath is appeased. But there's another debt that is incurred when we sin as well. And Voss puts it like this. He says, it's that which is withheld when we sin. And what is withheld from God when we sin? Well, it's our obedience. And so just because your sin account is wiped out and brought to zero doesn't mean it's done. Because now there's the debt of obedience. We still must obey. For instance, the scripture said that says that we're to honor our fathers and mothers. You're to honor your father and mother. And so let's say that you don't. Let's say that you don't honor your father and mother. That is, you sin, and you sin against God, and you sin against your father and mother by not honoring them. And so, the atoning sacrifice, you're in ancient Israel, and you say, well, I'm going to bring this offering, this sin offering, is going to take care of the offense against God. And so you leave that place feeling reasonably good that, that the sin has been atoned for, but now you walk out into the world with what debt? To honor your father and mother. You still owe that. You still need to do that. You failed to do that. Now you need to do that. The scripture says that we're not to murder. Let's say someone murders. And they bring an atoning sacrifice. And so the offense, the guilt from the offense, the penalty from the, for the offense, if you will, before God at least is wiped out. But then you still owe the debt of respecting life. And the scripture says we're not to commit adultery. But let's say someone commits adultery. And they bring an atoning sacrifice to take care of the offense before God of the adultery. But you see, in their sin, not only have they incurred that debt, but now they've incurred the debt of what they failed or what they withheld, which was faithfulness in marriage. They still owe that. Scripture says we're not to steal. So when you steal from someone, there's an offense before God and there's punishment. That debt may be paid by the atoning sacrifice, but, but, but what about... The debt that's incurred from what you withheld, that is, loving them. You need to restore that. You need to stop stealing and restore that which you've taken. If you lie, then there's an atoning sacrifice that, that covers, let's say, the lie. And blessed be God for that. But still, now you need to go out and tell the truth. If you covet, there's an atoning sacrifice that could cover the covetousness, the penalty, the offense against God for that. But then you need to go out and love and... And bless those who have that which you would like for yourself. And the scripture says that we would have no other gods before God himself. But if we sin in that area, 
and actually follow the philosophies of others and let someone else other than God define and direct their lives, then there's an atoning sacrifice for that. But, but, but still, then, we owe the debt to God of honor to Him. And if we make graven images, that is, that we devise for ourselves uh, an idea of who God is and we worship that instead of God Himself, that's a sin against God and thus... There's an atoning sacrifice that would need to be made to cover that offense. But still then, we need to walk in purity before God. And we owe now Him reverence to worship Him as He is. If we take His name in vain, there's an offense there before God. Penalty must be paid. But then we must go out and live in such a way that we honor His name. If we dishonor the Sabbath, there's an offense before God. And atonement must be made. But still then, we must go out and we owe the debt of obedience. To honor God. Are you with me? Hello. Breathe. Come on. That's good. So when we sin, there's a debt. The debt is twofold. One is the offense that must be paid. The second still is the debt owed is that which was withheld by not obeying. We still owe that. And here's the point of all of this. God says, if you want to live in my presence, then we need to cover both of those. So there's the atoning sacrifice and then there's the trespass offering. And the atoning sacrifice says the offense is paid. The trespass offering says now you're going to be required to give, to do, to make restoration, to make reparation, to repair the injury, to compensate for that. And so who do we see in this? Jesus. I know that was a tough one. It's as hard as this quiz gets. You see, in the midst of this, we see Jesus. On the one hand, we see him as our atoning sacrifice. Most assuredly, he's the unblemished one. He's our substitute. He's the one who takes the debt of the penalty, of the offense upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin. That, he, he experiences that in his death. But we're not only saved, you see, by the death of Christ, we're also saved by His life. Because, you see, when He lived, He lived for us. And when He lived, He lived in such a way that He obeyed everything that we're to obey. And He did it, He obeyed it for us, for instance. Remember when he was in the wilderness and Satan came to him and tempted him those three times, at least at that moment. We suspect there were more temptations, but certainly then these three are delineated for us. Then he just flashed back to Genesis chapter 3 and realized that there was a time when this very same evil one, this very same Satan came to Adam and Eve. And when this Satan came to Adam and Eve, what did they do? They sinned. What did Jesus do? He didn't. He obeyed. At that point in time, you see, he paid what we had withheld. At that point in time, he paid what Adam and Eve had withheld, that is, obedience. In fact, Jesus could speak of himself like this, for instance, in John, in chapter 4, in verse 31. Jesus speaks like this. The scripture reads, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know uh, not about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me 
and to accomplish His work. See, that's, that should be on the lips of every human being. Every one of us should desire to be able to say, uh, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me. Now, I don't know about you, but every time those words come off my lips, there's a certain measure of conviction. Because you see, with Jesus, that was true of him. Every ounce of his being desired to do the will of his Father, and he did it. I may desire it in some measure, but I know my life. I don't think I could stand too long before you and say, I do the will of God always. You know me well enough, and you'd say, that's the salt. That's crazy. But Jesus could say it. But the good news is, he said it and did it for us. Turn to John in chapter 6. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet do not believe all the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out for, verse 38, for I have come down from heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, he said it, John chapter 8, turn there. In verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And then verse 45. Jesus says, But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. And he says, I always tell the truth. And you see, in this way, Jesus fulfilled precisely what the psalmist had written about the Messiah. We mentioned this verse some weeks ago. It's in Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. And David writes this. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is written, written within my heart. See, again, that should be a statement true of all of us. We, sh- we all should be able to say, I desire to do your will, O God. Your law is written on my heart, meaning it's the very essence of me. And my very heart opened would see the very law of God, the very desire of God, the very will of God on it. Because you see, what God is worth is our whole lives. Every time we sin, we incur this debt which is twofold. On the one hand, the offense. On the other hand, that which was withheld. And so we still owe this obedience. The good news for us is that Jesus obeyed. He not only took the penalty for our sin, but he also lived our obedience. Turn to Romans in chapter 5, please. I only need a couple of verses at the end of this, but let me begin reading with verse 12. Because it's a great passage, and you may skip this this year in your reading, so I don't want you to. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, do you understand that verse? The apostle is making this point. That Adam was our representative. He was a representative of all of humanity. And when he sinned, we sinned. Now you're thinking, I wasn't there. But remember, God works on this way of representation. So when Adam sinned as our representative, it was as if we sinned and thus we incurred all the guilt and condemnation that was given to him. When your Congress person votes for you in Topeka or in Washington, D.C., you realize you vote. That person is your representative. And however they vote, you vote if they represent you. So Adam voted in a particular way, and it represented all of us. So that's the point there. Then verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, not like Adam's trespass, where it withheld obedience. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the, grace, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For judgment, the judgment following one trespass, brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign through the one man, Jesus Christ. See, the apostle saying this, that when Adam sinned, we all entered into that sin. But when Christ obeyed, all who are in him, all those who believe in him, all those who are united to him, Obeyed with him. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that is Adam's, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that is Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And so you see, Jesus is not only our sin offering, but he's also this trespass offering. Because he offered to God that which we withheld, obedience. And we get his righteousness. Turn to Philippians in chapter 3. In verse 8. The apostle writes, Indeed, I count... Okay, I'll give you a minute. Philippians is easy. Come on, fast. Philippians 3.8 Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, you see, the reason I'm going through all this is that I want you to love Jesus even more than you do now. Because I want you to see your lostness. And I want you to see your savedness. And I want you to know who's responsible for that. See, in your lostness, you disobeyed. But in your savedness, 
someone paid the entire debt both ways. The atoning sacrifice for the offense, but then also obeyed for you. So that now, not only are your sins forgiven, but God actually counts you as righteous. And the only way that's true is because of Jesus. Turn to 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him, that is, God the Father made Jesus. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what Martin Luther says about that particular verse. He says this. So this is the mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, whereby, by a wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's. I don't know. I don't, even, I don't know that I can, in a moment, comprehend that, that, that phrase. But it's true, he says, wherein by a wonderful exchange our sins are no longer ours but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ is not Christ's but ours. You think about that exchange. That your sins were taken and put upon him as he died. His obedience, his righteousness, his righteousness was taken and put upon you. To declare that by him or by Christ alone we're accounted righteous. What else is this by to what what else is this to lodge our righteousness in Christ's obedience? Because the obedience of Christ is reckoned to us as if it were our own. Turn to First Corinthians in chapter one and verse thirty. The scripture reads, He, that is God the Father, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord that is Christ is our righteousness. Let me read to you what John Calvin said about this so I can get the approval of both the Lutherans and the Calvinists this morning. He writes this, he says, it is also evident that we are justified before God solely by the intercession of Christ's righteousness. This is equivalent to saying that man is not righteous in himself, but because the righteousness of Christ is communicated to him by imputation to declare. I'm sorry, I, I, I think I read the wrong quote before to declare that by him, Christ alone, we are accounted righteous. So Luther's point is there's this great exchange that our sin goes to Christ, his righteousness to us. And Calvin says it's by Christ alone, and that is, and that is true. And the question is, how can that be? It can be only true if you are united to Christ. And how is one united to Christ? Well, that question can be answered in two ways. But we're looking at it by God's perspective. He's the one who unites us with Christ. And so we read expressions in the scripture like this. That God chose us in him before the creation of the world. So there's this mysterious, magnificent, sovereign work of God. 
And then we enter into the experience of that as we come to Him by faith and as we believe. And thus the expression in Christ, through Christ, through Him, in Him, in the Scripture is very significant. Because we realize that what He did, we did. So when He died, He died for our sins. And when He lived, He lived in obedience that we might receive His righteousness. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it like this. It's a great 16th century Dutch... I'm hitting all my bases this morning. Question number 60 is this. How are you righteous before God? The answer is, only by a true faith in Jesus Christ that is through my... Though my conscience accuse me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and keep none of them, and I'm still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness and holiness of Christ, as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. When I hear the gospel, I think it's almost too good to be true. I look inside my own heart and know my own sin and my own lostness. And I realize the helplessness and hopelessness that's there. And then I hear the gospel. And when I hear the gospel, what I hear is Jesus. And when I hear Jesus, I hear this one who made the atoning sacrifice, covered that debt. And I also hear this one who obeyed for me, covering that which I withhold when I sin, obedience. And so he covered it all. I don't know if you remember, but some time ago when Jerry Bridges was here preaching, actually I don't know if it was his sermon or part of the NAV conference, So if you like this line and miss the NAV conference, don't miss it next year. But he said, when the scripture speaks of our being justified, we often use the expression that that means that God sees us just as if we'd never sinned. But this is also true. That when the scripture says that we're justified, God sees us just as if we've always obeyed. And I have to tell you, that's amazing to me. I mean, I I barely, if I do, have a category in my brain for that. But just to realize that because of Jesus, that my sins are blotted out and God remembers them no more. And all the things which I'm to obey are already counted through Christ as if I obeyed because he already did. You see, there's two kinds of religions in the world. One is the religion of doing and the other is the religion of already done. And you see, Christianity falls into that second category. It's the faith of already done. It isn't what we do, it's what's been done for us. And that's so amazing. Especially when you think about what's been done. On the one hand, the suffering, the obedient suffering of Christ, that he takes the curse of the law for us. And on the other hand, the perfect obedience, the positive obedience of Jesus in the course of his life for us. And again, I keep saying this because I keep wanting it to sink in deeper and deeper in some sense in us to realize how wonderful this is.
that we've been given the righteousness of Christ. And you may ask the question, well, well, what does that then mean about the course of my own life? If Jesus already did it, then why should I do anything? If Jesus already obeyed, then why don't I just go out and sin? Well, it took our Dutch Reformed friends for the Heidelberg Catechism a few questions to get to there. But question 64 is this. But what does this doctrine mean? I'm sorry. But does this doctrine make men careless and profane? And the answer is by no means. For it's impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thanks, thankfulness. That is, we won't abuse this. But once you really come to realize your lostness, and once you realize your savedness, and once you realize who's responsible for that, and once you realize that the reason that that's a blessing to you is that because by the very sovereign grace of God, acting by means of your faith, you're joined together with that blessing of Christ. Once you realize that, and you realize then that this very same Christ to whom, with whom you're identified lives within you. In fact, he lives within us by the Holy Spirit who is at work to form Christ himself in us then we realize that we're now free to obey. That this righteousness that we're clothed with then begins to well up in us and work out through in the course of our life. When Isaiah the prophet was speaking, really, of Jesus, he writes this in Isaiah chapter 53. In verse 10, he says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was my announcement this morning, by the way, if you're listening. In the very beginning of the service, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Some versions said it pleased the Lord to crush him. So if you're ever wondering who killed Jesus, the answer to that question is God the Father crushed him. It was his will and it pleased him to do it. For your sins, thus this atoning sacrifice. But Isaiah goes on, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes, and in the English Standard Version it says, when his soul makes an offering for sin, but really, that's best translated as I read it out of the NIV this morning, earlier, that his soul makes a trespass offering, a gift offering. Because you see, Jesus' obedience is so thorough that not only does he obey the law in the sense that he does everything it requires in a positive way, that he obeys every single commandment for us, but then the law also says if you don't obey, there's a curse. And so Jesus obeys even that part of the law and becomes the curse for us. And so we have his active obedience in a positive way to obey all of the commandments. And we have his suffering obedience as well. And both these began at the Incarnation. At the Incarnation, Jesus began obeying in a positive way and suffering all at the same time. For he did everything that his Father required. But he also entered into our weakness. And then, after obeying his Father perfectly for us, then he came to that moment of his passion and death. Obedience still for us. And it was that night that Jesus met with his disciples and he took bread and 
after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And again, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And I believe we need to remember Jesus. We need to think about the very fact of our lostness and our savedness and understand who's responsible for that. And in all that, that our love for Christ would deepen. For we realize that he paid the debt and he also lived the life. And so everything is covered. There's not anything left undone by him. The sin has been paid for. The obedience has happened. And it really is done. And now he calls us, on the one hand, to live in the forgiveness, and on the other hand, to live in the obedience. And follow him. I often say that Christianity is Christ. It's all about Jesus and all about what he's done. And the focus of our attention must always be on him, to love him, and to worship him, and to be thankful to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray even now that you would set apart this juice and this bread in such a way that in it we could remember Jesus. Lord Jesus, please meet us here. And I pray that as we do, we, by your mysterious Yet wonderful grace in these moments, our love for you would deepen as we see ourselves before knowing you. We see ourselves now that we know you and we understand that you are the one responsible for that transformation, for that forgiveness, and for the life that we now have. May we attribute our righteousness to none other than you. May it humble us before one another and you. And may we love you. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind